Father, it was the psalmist who said at a certain point in his life, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. We have all been at that place, that place of, uh, of despair, that, that place of looking around and thinking that the best days of my life are behind me. When we verge on despair, we are, at, well, we've, we've, we've put down our biblical glasses and we can't find them. We're not seeing straight. We're not seeing clearly. We've got an astigmatism of the heart and the soul. And we are looking at events from a perspective that is warped. It could be the, uh, the death of a loved one, a spouse, a child. It could be the loss of a job. It could be the loss of health. Uh, it could be a, a relational setback of some type. It could be a loss of trust with a close friend. It, it can come in so many different ways. But what, what happens is the heart is just taken out of us and we're not even sure that we want to go on or continue. We are encouraged as we look at men in the scripture that they were vulnerable and they were honest. We thank you for David. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for those men who were so greatly used, but they were men. And they had the ups and the downs. And there are times in Scripture when we would see them right there on the edge. Spirits low. Wishing there was a way out and they could just go ahead and be delivered and go to heaven and be with you. Now, we're going to encounter that as men at various times. By your mercy and grace, that's not the norm, because your mercies are, are new every morning. You are gracious to us. You are kind to us. We are not perpetually in the pit. There are times and there are seasons. And whenever we've got guys together, we've got men that are in that season, where they're in a deep pit. And when we're in a deep pit, and we pray that we'll be delivered, and we continue to be there, it's very, very easy for us to lose heart and to lose hope and to find ourselves fighting off despair. So tonight, I pray that you would give us an infusion of hope. As we look at this passage tonight, as we look at just a handful of words May they be uh, dynamited into our hearts and may they destroy despair that any man here might be dealing with. And may you give us a hope that is based on truth and on the facts. We are not in this by ourselves. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who wait for his loving kindness. We, we are dependent on you. We are waiting on you. You are our sovereign God. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand tonight. We're facing different situations. We have prayed. We, we have asked you to do certain things. But even as we have asked you, we humble ourselves. And we say to you, Lord, that we don't know what's best. You do. We trust you. We humble ourselves under your great authority and your great wisdom. And we were reminded that in another section of Psalms, the psalmist said, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You know what's best. You know how to get us where we need to be. You know how to get us out of that pit. Deliver us, we pray. Encourage our hearts. Lift us up tonight by the power of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Gerald Ford was not president for a real long time, but he had been serving, as you know, for a number of years in the House of Representatives. And it was of Gerald Ford that one of his political enemies once made the comment, he played too much football without a helmet. 
Uh, he was actually quite an outstanding football player at Michigan. The helmet is a critical piece, as we're going to see tonight in Ephesians chapter 6. We've been working our way through Ephesians uh, 6, 10, moving all the way down to verse 20. Let's pick it up at 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, not one piece, not two. Take up the full armor of God that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Or another way would be having put on the belt of truth. Christianity is about truth. Uh, Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Isn't it interesting that we live in a culture that is so far gone that in our universities and our school system, we teach that there is no absolute truth. It doesn't exist. Uh, your, your kids, your grandkids are in educational, public educational institutions, and that is the mantra. There is no absolute truth. I always find it interesting that they will state that there is no absolute truth. Absolutely. So they have just negated the principle by their very statement. Absolutely, there is no absolute. That's insane. That's utter foolishness. We put on the girdle, we put on the, be the, the belt of truth. That is central. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, if you were with us, that breastplate covers the vital organs. Satan will attack me in my heart. He will say, look at your life, look at your behavior. How can you call yourself a Christian? You keep falling short, and we do keep falling short. What do we do? We put on the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. The right, we clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, and he died for us, in our place, and his righteousness was credited to us. It's an amazing concept. In addition to all, taking up a shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, as you're serious about following Christ, know that the enemy is taking his arrows, dipping it in pitch, lighting it, and just as we've seen in the movies, uh, as, as he sees the army of the living God coming, he... What do you do? Boy, that's tough to take one of those flaming arrows in the gut. Well, that's why they had the shield. Two and a half feet wide, four, four and a half feet long. Small doors. And those guys marching in close order rank formation. Those arrows would be coming. They'd take a knee, and together they'd put up those shields. And it was just one solid mass of protection. And the arrows would hit the shield and be extinguished. 17. Here we are tonight. And take the helmet of salvation. Just the helmet of salvation. What in the world is the helmet of salvation? Uh, the helmet is critical. Uh, we mentioned Paul was looking at a Roman soldier. And you've seen pictures of Roman soldiers. You've seen movies. Uh, picture their helmet. It could be either uh, leather, uh, metal, combination of both. It completely covered the face. There would be a shield across the, there would be a, uh, a, a section across the forehead. It would come down, cover the cheeks, cover the jaw bones, come down underneath the lips. It, it there would be a flexible piece coming down here on the back. It would come all the way down to the neck. And, and actually drape over the shoulders, uh, just leaving room for the eyes and the nose, um, the mouth, a couple openings uh, for the ears so the commands could be heard. 
The armor's critical. We, we have heard in uh, recent years that some of the armor that were given, was given to our soldiers was not up to par. The armor was not what it needed to be. And if the armor was strengthened, if I hadn't left my notes on my desk, I would have read you an up-to-the-minute report on uh, helmets for our soldiers. Um, and what it said was that if they just put another quarter inch of sponge padding, what it would do would add another, if I'm not mistaken from my memory, another 34% of protection in the helmets which they have right now. Helmets are critical. What is it about a helmet when you go into battle? You don't want to go into battle without a helmet. I remember the first football helmet that I had was leather, and it flopped around. It wasn't my helmet, it was my dad's helmet. I found it in my grandmother's garage as we were going through some stuff and pulled that out. And my dad, oh, that's my, my dad's, that's my old helmet. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt gave it to him. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. But it was one of the last of the old, you know what I'm talking, one of those old Red Grange helmets. I mean, it didn't do anything, you know. I remember my first helmet, football helmet. Uh, I was seven years old, my birthday, 1956. And I had seen this uh, helmet down at the uh, sporting goods store. I lived in Bakersfield, California, and there was a football player from Bakersfield, California named Frank Gifford who in 56 was the most valuable player in the National Football League. I remember the day Frank Gifford came over to my house to go fishing with my dad, and I told all my friends he was coming, and none of them believed me. Because he was the most famous football player in America in 1956. And, you know, some of you guys remember him as a sportscaster. He was a great running back at USC, and then played for the Giants for a long time. But in 56, he was the most valuable player. I remember the day my dad said... Uh, yeah, Frank's coming over, we're going to go fishing, and they were going somewhere up to the Kern River. And they were going to leave at 4 in the morning. And I told all my friends, I said, Frank Gifford's coming to my house. They go, yeah, 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 right, right. And they didn't believe me. I was crushed. They did not believe me. But uh, that afternoon, about 3 o'clock, when uh, he got in his car in our driveway and drove off, all my friends were standing on the corner and they saw him. One of the greatest moments of my life. <laughs> and it was that same year that I found a football helmet down at that sporting goods store. And uh, it was a Frank Gifford signature helmet. And uh, my Uncle Joe was in town for my birthday. He was up from L.A. And I was doing something with Uncle Joe. I can't remember what it was. I think we were going in and out. I just made that up. We were doing something, and I said, hey, Uncle Joe, you want to see something neat? And he goes, yeah. I said, let's go down to that sporting goods store. He said, okay. We went down, and I showed him that Frank Gifford helmet. He said, that's a pretty neat helmet. And it had, a, it had something that, it was brand new. It had, a, it had a face mask that was plastic that was see-through. I mean, that was just unbelievable. They didn't work because they never did it again after that year with those face masks. But, And the next day was my birthday. And Uncle Joe handed me this box. And I knew what was in it. It was that Frank Gifford helmet. That weekend was maybe the greatest weekend of my life. I'll be honest with you, it's pretty much been downhill since then. <laughs> My friends saw Frank Gifford, and I got the helmet. You know what a helmet does? What does a helmet do? Uh, oh, and then you remember how helmets developed? And, and, and they, used to, they used to not even have face masks. And, you know, now they've got all these issues with concussions, these head-to-head -head hits. I love what uh, Mike Ditka said about that. He said, hey, you want to stop that concussion thing? You want to stop those head-to-head -head hits? He said, take off the face mask. That's how they used to play. No face mask. That's real football, you see. Uh, but when you get a helmet, 
And then they kept designing the cages in front, you know, the two bars, and then they'd have the bar come down, and then they'd have the cage and the whole thing. You know, anyway. you know what a helmet does as you go into battle? A helmet increases your confidence. If you go into battle, whether it's football or you go into the battlefield without a helmet, you see, that helmet will protect the head. It'll protect your brain. It'll protect, because you can take shots, and unless you get hit by an axe, or you get, I mean, you can deflect blows of a sword with a good, strong helmet. Uh, it's an essential piece. What does this helmet mean? If you turn over to 1 Thessalonians 5, if you go to the right, there's another mention of the helmet. And what kind of helmet is this? It's a helmet of salvation. Well, what does that mean? It's, is it a knowledge that we're saved? It's, that's partially it. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, it speaks of the helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, what is this about? So in Ephesians, it's the helmet of salvation. In Thessalonians, it's the helmet, which is the hope of salvation. This is a critical piece in spiritual warfare. I want to show you how it is so critical if you'll flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Because, you see, it's the helmet of salvation. What does salvation mean? Well, when we think of salvation, we think, well, well, that's when I heard the gospel and I responded and asked Christ to come into my life. And I prayed the sinner's prayer and I said, Lord Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you're the son of God. Uh, or I, I, I heard the pastor give the gospel. I responded. I asked the Lord to come into my life. I trusted in Christ alone for forgiveness of my sins. That's when I was saved. Correct. That's when you were saved. But you see, there's a lot more to it than that. If you will, the gospel is the good news. And salvation is not just the moment that I ask Christ to come into my life. It's, it's, that's certainly it, but it's bigger than that. In Ephesians chapter 2, I, I, I want to go ahead, when, before I read Ephesians 2, I want to give you a principle. When it says in Thessalonians, the helmet, the hope of salvation, it's not so much talking, the helmet is not so much just about the fact that you have been saved, that's a fact, but the helmet is about the fact that you have been saved and will continue to be saved because of the work of Christ. He will continue to be your Savior every day of your life. That is the hope. You don't have to be in despair. He doesn't just save me once when I ask Him into my life. From He's my Savior from then on every moment of my life, and He will never quit being my deliverer. He will never quit being my Savior. Um, when I find myself in battle in tight spots and difficult situations, I don't have to despair. And you are going to find yourself in battle. You are going to find yourself taking some shots. You are going to find yourself getting hurt. You're, you're going to find yourself at times in circumstances you don't want to be. And see, here's where Satan will come in and he will just play havoc with your mind and cause you to lose hope. But when you understand the ramifications of the helmet of salvation, it defeats despair and gives you a confidence and a hope about the future which Christ has planned for you. Let me show this to you in Ephesians 2. Ephesians, now the, the salvation message is in 2.8, but he doesn't start there. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. See, that's where you start when it comes to salvation. We have not always been saved. We were apart from Christ. We were spiritually dead. We had no interest in God. We had no desire for God. We were not seeking God. Psalm 14, there is no one who seeks God. There is no one who does good. God has looked over the sons of the earth. There is no one who seeks him. We have this mistaken idea that all these people are seeking God. That's not right. We are not seeking God. We are seeking ourselves and our own fulfillment. Well, you say, yeah, but at a point I started seeking God. Yes, you did, because he was pulling you in. No man can come unless the Father draws him. So see, that's the process. Uh, you might even be here tonight. And you've, you've started coming over the last few weeks. And you've never been in church before. 
But what are you doing here? You say, well, that's a good question. I'm not quite sure. And, and, you, and you got a Bible? And you never had a Bible before. Well, we're glad you're here. That's, that's, hey, that's where we all started. You say, well, this is kind of new. I don't, I'm not quite, I don't quite get it yet. That's okay. We're glad you're here. You just keep showing. And you, and you say, it is kind of interesting that I'm here. Yeah, it is. But what's happening? Well, you, want, you want to know what's happening? Christ is pulling you in. He's pulling you to himself. I'll never forget, King, when you told me that story about how you started coming to this Bible study. Um, our friend Paul, who was in here for years and years and years, had Lou Gehrig's disease. A lot of you guys remember. How many of you guys remember Paul? Paul was here, and Paul was a medical doctor, power lifter, great guy, loved to hunt, you know, fly his plane, man's man, and then he got Lou Gehrig's disease. And uh, was in the same medical group as King. And there were a group of guys that when we started this Bible study and we were in that upstairs, up over the old sanctuary, um, they, they would pull in in a van and uh, Dave and Richard and King and these different guys and they'd come in with Paul and carry that chair up and, you know, faithful, always, always here. And it was at Paul's uh, funeral afterwards at the... Uh, you know, at the reception, we're just standing around talking, and several of those guys that would bring uh, Paul. And King said, you know, Steve, I don't know if you really know the story, how I started coming. And I said, well, I really don't. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, I worked with Paul and lived not too far. And when he got the Lou Gehrig's disease, I said to him, I said, uh, hey, now look, at if there's anything I can do for you, you let me know. Anything you need, you know, around the house or whatever. You just, whatever it is, you just let me know. And and uh, he asked me one time if I'd do him a favor, and I said, sure, anything. He said, would you take me to Bible study? And King kind of froze up, because you weren't a big Bible study guy, were you, King? Not really. And, uh, and he said, well, well, yeah, I will. And, uh, and then King started telling me, he said, I, I, never, you know, I didn't go to Bible study. And really didn't have a Bible. And King said, so I went over to Barnes & Noble. I was going to take him to this Bible study. And I thought, well, I better get a Bible. So I went over to Barnes & Noble, and he said, I couldn't believe there were so many Bibles. And as I recall, King said, I didn't know what to get. And I saw one that said New American Standard. And, and I'm American, sort of a standard guy, so I bought it. And, <laughs> you know, I'm kind of a patriotic guy. And, and, he, and he got a real good one, actually. And then he comes over to Paul, and he said, well, what am I supposed to do during this study? And he said, well, you just come in and sit with us. And, he thought it'd be a few guys, you know, around the table. He walked in, and it was more than a few. And Paul knew, he, Paul knew what he was doing the whole time. He was taking advantage of the good graces of Paul, and uh, he turned it on him. Hey, would you take me to... Uh... He already had 19 guys taking him to Bible study. But he knew that King needed the Lord. And so what did King do? He got a Bible, and he started coming in, he started listening, and, you know... Now, where's Paul? He's with the Lord. There's old King. I always look out there, and King's out. He's been here for, what, eight, nine years? Ten years. Gosh. Is that right? Gosh. See, I don't even remember that. Well, I kind of do remember it, but a long time. And when King first started coming in, he didn't, you know, he really was aware of the Lord, but in terms of personal, and what happened? The Lord just started pulling him in. He wasn't even sure what he was doing. Well, if you're here, and that's, uh, that's great, that's fine. We're glad you're here. And say, well, so you're saying what now? I'm saying the Lord's pulling you in. And you ask all your questions, and... Uh, I'll tell you what, the more you get to know Christ and the more you get to know his word, the more comfortable you'll become. And you'll find out why you were born and why, why you exist. But see, the Lord's got to do a work in our heart. He starts pulling us in. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And it says, verse 3, see, we were all in that condition. Among them, uh, too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. We were all against God. We were in it for ourselves. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, That's amazing. Even when we were dead in our transgressions. See, even when we were dead in our transgression, he loved us. There was nothing lovable about us. Jesus said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. We love him because he first loved us. You say, oh, well, you know, I came to the Lord. You came to the Lord because he came to you and pulled you in. You responded to the love of God. He loved us when we were not lovable. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, watch this. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You say, I'm not there now. Positionally, you're there. I'll explain that in a minute. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We are trophies of the grace of God that will be uh, demonstrable trophies for all of eternity. We are recipients of the grace of God. Okay, now, watch this. Now, here's the salvation as we understand it normally and typically. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Something you should note about verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. How it's constructed in the Greek, the idea is this. This is very important. You have been saved, and the results will continue for the rest of your life. It's a fact you have been saved, and the results will never stop accruing in your life. Grammatically, that is the construction. It's not just you were saved, but you were saved, and the results of that salvation will continue to accrue every waking moment of your life until you are taken with Christ up into the heavenlies and glorified with him. Um, the salvation never stops. He is always my savior. He is always my deliverer. He is always making a way. He is always providing. He is always navigating. That is the concept that is here. And what happens is we're Christians. We come to know Christ. Oh, we have an enemy, okay? We're in spiritual battle. We're battling these forces we can't see, and we wonder, why is my life so hard, and why is my life so difficult? Because you're a Christian. That's why your life is so hard, and that's why your life is so difficult. Well, I thought it was going to be a, a lot better life. It is a lot better life, but it's also a harder life. Uh, in the world, Jesus said, you'll have an easy time. I love that verse. I got it in my kitchen. And Mary turned it around backwards so nobody can read it. That's not in the Bible. Jesus didn't say in the world you'll have an easy life. Jesus said in the world you'll have tribulation. In the world you'll have trouble. Trouble. That's why you've got trouble. You're walking with Christ. You belong to him. This world is not my home. This is not my final destination. I'm just passing through. This is preparation for where we're going, which is going to be forever. You see? And the way that I'm prepared is that I go through adversity and hardship. You say, Steve, you kind of say this every week. It's because it's the gospel. It's basically on every page of the Bible. Pretty much on every page of the Bible, you've got the sovereignty of God. You've got his grace. You've got the fact that life is hard. Somebody's in a crisis. And if the Lord doesn't deliver them, they're toast. Pretty much that's it. And the Lord's always, he's always saving for by grace you have been saved, never forget this, with continuing results. So as you're in battle, and if you're battling this or you're battling this, loneliness, you're, 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 you're battling despair, you, you, you've lost your, your job, you lost your income, you lost your income stream, you lost, you know, you're fighting health issues, all this. You see, you're, there's all these battles, and the enemy starts playing, he just wrecks havoc on your mind and on your thinking. And what happens is you lose your hope. Why, Psalm 42, why are you in despair, O my soul? Uh, Christian guys get into despair. We get tired of the battle. We get tired of fighting. We get tired of the pressure. 
We get worn down. We get fatigued. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And then what does it say, Nick? It says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. When you're worn out, see, when you take off your helmet, you're going to verge on despair. But you got to put the helmet of salvation back on. He has saved me. What does that mean? He has saved me. Oh, with continuous results. He will continue to save me. Am I in a bad spot? Yes. I was in my car this morning. Guy called me. I talked to him about once a year, every 18 months, and he just was checking in. And he said, I was calling Steve to see if you could pray for me. I have a critical meeting at the bank today. You know, we bought this business three years ago just before things went south. Probably overpaid. You know, I've been trying to meet the note. If they don't refinance the note, it's over. It's toast. It's history. It's all going to be gone. We're going to lose everything. And I'm wondering, and you know, you knew a little bit about that. You know, over the last year, my wife got cancer, almost died. We've been dealing with that. I don't think you knew that. I said, no, I didn't. He said, man, it's been one thing after another, and this is really a critical day, and just wondered if you had a minute we could pray, and we prayed. And I said, you know, Lee, I remember other situations you've told me about. You remember that time you told me about this deal and when you were in California? You remember how you got the call at the last minute and God delivered you on that? He goes, yeah, I do. And I said, you had another deal. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here you are today. He goes, yeah. And if that appraiser doesn't do this, and if that doesn't come in where it needs to be, it's over. I said, isn't it great that God controls appraisals? <laughs> and God controls appraisers? And, and do you know what the guys think? He goes, no. I said, well, God knew about that a long, long time ago. And, and you know, the, I, really, the, 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 your destiny is not in the hands of the appraiser or the appraisal. It's in the hands of the Lord. He goes, that's right. So we just pray. See, once again, when, when you're in despair, you've got to put on the helmet of salvation. Oh, by the way, who is it to save me? The living God. The living God saved me. Uh, Jesus saved me. Who's Jesus? He's the creator of the world. He spoke it into existence. He has always been. He has always existed. He runs the world. He owns the world. He's coming back one day. He's going to return. He's going to set up his kingdom. It's all going to be handled. We're going to live forever. All this junk's going to be over and done with. And it's... That's who saved me. See, that's why he saved me, and he will continue to save me. So that's why it says in Psalm 42, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become cast down within me? Watch this. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. He doesn't say I might again praise him. He says I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. Why? Because I've been saved in Ephesians 2.8, and there are continuing results of the salvation. It never leaves me. Is that not good stuff? Amen. You can live off this stuff. And then he proves it right there in 2.8. Watch this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Watch this. Now here are the continuing results. I was saved. See, a lot of times we think salvation is I came to Christ, I gave Christ my life, I've been saved uh, I, I have the assurance that I'm going to heaven. Okay, great. But that's not all of it. There are continuing results. Look at verse 10. Here are the continuing results. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You said, I thought salvation wasn't of good. He's not talking about good works here, to be saved. You were already saved in verse 8. And you weren't saved by works, you were saved by grace. These are the good works that God produces in your life to do after you're saved. See, there's a reason he saved you. He saved you because he has a work for you to do. You are his workmanship. He created you. He crafted you. You're not like the guy sitting next to you. You're not like the guy behind you. You're not the guy in like the guy in front of you. Maybe the guy in front of you is good with math, and he's an engineer, and he can compute all that stuff. But you're not a math guy. You're, uh, you're a reader. You're literary. You're a word guy. You see, you're completely different. Or the guy next to you, 
is, is a people guy. He can read people like you read a book. You see, we're all different. Psalm 139, we are, David says, uh, what does he say? He says, I am fearfully, wonderfully made. See, salvation goes back to even before you were born, it goes back to when you were in the womb, and even goes back before then. You say, how do you know it goes back before then? Look at the rest of the verse. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before when? Before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. He has a work for you to do. Is your life easy? Is, is, does it always go the way you plan? No, it doesn't. Why? You're in a battle. You're in a war. You're going to get attacked. And the more serious you are about Christ, the, the hotter the battle is going to become. You're, you're going to get resistance. You're going to get blindsided. You're going to get nailed. Just, and, 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 and you're in battle. But see, when you keep getting nailed and you keep fighting these battles, and you, sometimes you just get fatigued and you get overwhelmed, and what happens is, if you take off that helmet of salvation which is the hope of salvation. See, when you lose your hope, you're in trouble. Because you, you oh my gosh, I'm not sure I can go on. I'm not sure I can keep doing this. I mean, but, but, see, but see, when you've got the, the helmet of salvation, which is the hope of salvation, you can confidently face the future, even though you're in the heat of battle, and you're fatigued and you're worn out, because it's the helmet of salvation, and he did save you, and with continuing results, he will save you again. That's your hope. Your confidence is in Christ that he will continue to be your savior. Am I beating a dead horse or what? But isn't this what we need to hear? He doesn't save me once. He said, how many times have I quoted John Newton in here? When you would meet John Newton on the street, the old slave trader, he was a pastor in only England, You'd meet him on the street, and you would say, Pastor Newton, how are you today? He would say, I am just as God would have me. That's brilliant. I am just as God would have me. Why? My life is under his sovereign hand. Someone asked me when I walked in here, how's your week been? I said, good. And he said, really? I said, well, better than the week before. You see. But the week before, which was not so good of a week, and this week, which was better, either way, I'm just as God would have me. Because if it's not going so well, what does it mean? It means I'm in the battle. You see? But I've got to remember in the battle that I have a hope. I have a confidence for the future. I'm going to get through the battle. You say, no, wait a minute. What if you're battling cancer? What if you die? You win. Right? You know, sometimes we lose our perspective. I mean, we, we, we obviously, we want to live, but you're never going to beat death. Something's going to get you. Um, I'm familiar with someone who's in their 80s, getting advice from doctors, and apparently, I won't go into a lot of details, but apparently they've had a certain kind of cancer, and I'm not a doctor, I'm just telling you what I've heard, but two doctors said, look it, you need to go ahead and have another round of chemotherapy. This is very aggressive, although we don't see it in your body if it's there. You got a 30% chance of it killing you. And I'm thinking, so you got a 70% chance it won't kill you. And you're 85, and they want you to go through chemo again? Now, see, if that were me, I wouldn't do it. That's just me. But my mother dropped me when I was a child. <laughs> But I'm thinking, no, wait a minute. So they're thinking, wait, you're telling, this is what I'm hearing. You got a 30% chance of dying, so they're going to have you have chemo, even though they can't find this anywhere in your body. And you're 85. See, to me, I'm thinking, well, you know what? So what's going to happen? 70% chance it won't show up. You're probably going to die in the next 10 years anyway. And you know the Lord. So do you want to put yourself through? I haven't said this to a person, I'm just thinking this. 
You got to read them biblically, don't you? Something's going to get you. Maybe the cancer won't get you, but you're walking across the street from the from the hospital lab, and a and a truck backs over you or something. I mean, I don't know. Something's going to get you. You're going to die. Jesus said, "He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live." We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would, we would walk in them. You've been saved with continuing results. Go to Romans 8. Let me show you something else about salvation. I was reading uh, about uh, Oliver Cromwell in British history when he raised up his army and uh, went against, I think it was King Charles I, who was a great hater of Christ, biblical Christianity. And uh, Cromwell was a committed Christian. His men were Christians. And his men all had uh, chaplains, and they would study the Word of God. And, and uh, the statement, I think I got this from James Boyce, is that uh, 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 Cromwell's men, because of their theology, uh, the way they'd been taught, they were Calvinist, and they believed in the sovereignty of God. And they would march into battle, and they absolutely had no fear because they believed that they were destined by God to be in battle, and they had a confidence in God that God would deliver them. And nobody wanted to go up against them because of their doctrine. They weren't afraid to die. They knew they couldn't die until their work was done. But they knew if they did die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where am I going? Thank you. We've been in Romans a lot over the last few weeks. Look at uh, 828. This is a great verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. Do you know that? We know that God causes all things. That means the good in your life. It means the bad in your life. It means the triumphs. It means the disappointments. It means the hurts. It means the setbacks. All that we encounter in life, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say all things are good. Murder's not good. Rape's not good. Bankruptcy, divorce, none of those things are good. But God causes all things to work. Joseph said to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to bring about this present result. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now watch how this works. Watch the backup of that statement. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he foreknew. The idea of foreknowing, some people say, well, that means God looked ahead to see who was going to accept him. That's not what it means. That is not what it means. The idea of foreknowing, you know, in the scripture, the knowing uh, is, is a synonym for love. It's a very intimate term. And Abraham knew Sarah. He loved Sarah. Ultimate expression, physical love. When it says he foreknew, it means he foreloved. It's not that he looked ahead to see who would, the guy was going, oh, I wonder who's, who's going to choose me. If he waited for us to choose him, you know how many of us would have chosen him? Zero. And if you think otherwise, you don't believe that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You think you were unconscious. You think you had a tank with oxygen being pumped in your nose. You were dead. You were dead as a doornail. You know the problem with dead people? They can't change their condition. They can't. Mary and I were in Tennessee one time. We're driving up in the country. She lived when she was a little girl. We're driving around, finding a little country church and all these little churches out in the country. Beautiful afternoon, spring. She's gorgeous. We go around this little uh, two-lane road, little church, picture perfect, little, little cemetery right next to the church. You've seen that, right? And we're driving along, and we see that little seminary, and we slow down because there's some curves. And all of a sudden, we're driving around, and I see in the cemetery, I see this hand come up out of the sod. I couldn't believe it. 
And I slow down, I see another hand. I pull over, I stop. I see this head come out. This guy then gets his elbow, he gets his elbow, he pulls himself up out of the ground. I'm parked there, Mary, we're just staring. The guy says, hey, can I get a lift into town? <laughs> now that's a great story, but it didn't happen. And the guy said, yeah, I've been dead for 48 years. I'm just sick and tired of it. <laughs> you know the thing about dead people? Dead people can't will to change their condition. They don't have the capability. They don't have the ability. And we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He made us alive. He did for me what he did for Lazarus. Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. How in the world did Lazarus ever hear Jesus? He was dead. Jesus had to make him alive before he spoke to him. How do I come to Jesus? He breathes spiritual life into me so that I can respond. Salvation is of the Lord. It's not of you. And see, when you get that... Uh, uh, this all makes sense. For whom he foreloved, he predestined. Oh my gosh, there's that word again. A lot of guys are uncomfortable with that word. We don't like that word. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's one of the greatest words in the Bible. You can't go to heaven unless you're predestined. Put a lid on it, man. Thank God for it. He called you. He foreloved you, he predestined. What does that mean? It means God has a plan for your life. And in your gut, you believe that. You say, Lord, show me your will. You know what you're saying? You've got a plan, I want to know it, show it to me. And he does have a plan. I don't know why we have such a hard time with this. This is the greatest doctrine in the world. And when you get it, you do say, it's a, it, why me? It's just grace. It's just sheer grace. And then we immediately ask, well, why doesn't he save everybody? Why doesn't everyone have it? Listen, if, and you're asking things, you, and that's Romans 9, you've got to deal with Romans 9. And I'm not going to Romans 9 right now. But all the questions that that brings up are in Romans 9. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among men. Now watch this, 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. That's Romans 5. Therefore, we have peace with God because we have been justified through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, you wouldn't have peace with God and you wouldn't be justified if he didn't forelove you and predestine you and choose you. You couldn't have peace with God. He also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. That's what happens when we go to heaven. We're going to be glorified. We won't deal with sin anymore. Okay. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And see, that's what you got to think when you're in the heat of battle, because when you take that helmet off, the helmet of salvation, you lose your hope. But see, when you're in the battle, you need the helmet of salvation on, and you need to remember, I have a hope, because I have been saved with continuing results, and he will continue to save me. So then I say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? It doesn't matter who's shooting at me if God is for me. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who brings a charge against God's elect? Satan does. Yeah, well, watch this. God is the one who justifies. Jesus has justified me. Who is the one who condemns? Satan is. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So Jesus prays for me as I'm struggling. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And I'm always told by the enemy, God doesn't love you. Look at you. You're not worth it. He's always lying to me. And I lose my hope. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril the sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things we overwhelmingly conquer. That's a battle term. 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's salvation. And that's the gospel. And so I can face the future with confidence and with hope because there is a destiny he has written for me while I'm on this earth that is sealed and nothing can change it. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in Christ Jesus. It's not dependent on you, it's dependent on him. Now that's the gospel. That's good stuff. That juices me up. Not with some feeling. Do I get a feeling? Yeah, why? Because it's true. It's true. There's my hope. I'm not in this by myself. What am I doing? 11, 11. Okay, good. Oh, wait a minute. I don't have any notes, so I'm just... Let's sing Kumbaya. <laughs> oh, by the way, have you guys ever heard me say, I don't like that song I could sing of your love forever? I, I, I really don't. I, I, I can't stand that song. I could sing of his love forever. I could sing of his love forever. I don't like it. You know why I don't like it? Because all they say is, I could sing of his love. I could sing of his love forever. I could sing of his love forever. Hey, everybody, let's stand. I can sing of his love forever. Hey, just the men. I can sing of his love forever. Just the women. I can sing of his love forever. Just the Republicans. I can sing of his love forever. Just the Democrats. Just the Communists. I can sing of his love forever. Just the Socialists, the Anarchists. The... And you know what bothers me about that? Number one, I, I find often many times when they sing of his love forever, it seems like they're going to. And then here's the second thing. That song does not contain one fact about the love of God. I could sing of his love forever. I, I remember being in church, and they must have done that song for 10 minutes, and I started getting irritated. And I remember thinking, all right, why don't you go ahead and do it? I could sing of his love forever. I, okay, okay, great. We'll do it. You're threatening me, but you haven't executed yet. Just because you can sing of his love doesn't mean that you have. And you have yet to give me a fact about the love of God. They, don't, they didn't give me one fact out of Romans chapter. How many facts were in Romans 8 about the love of God? There wasn't one fact in that song. I, I could sing of his love. Just because you can sing of his love doesn't mean that you are. Romans 8 gives me the facts about the love of God. And when I read about the love of God, that I am saved and secure, and my salvation was not the result of me praying a prayer on my own, just willing, you know, on, it does not depend on the man who runs or the man who wills, but on God who has mercy. The sovereign God called me and brought, him to his, brought me to himself. He has saved me with continuing results, will continue to save me my whole life. He has works for me to do. So what are my works? I don't know what your works are. Well, I'm not a preacher. I'm not up front. You don't need, most, most Christians aren't. Your salt, your light. God assigns us to our post. What do you do? You show up and you be faithful. You know what it is? It's very average, it's very mundane, and a lot of times it's boring. God takes his men, and you know what God loves? God loves his men to be predictable. That's called, you know what's required of a steward is that he be found faithful. You know what that means? Predictable. You read in Titus, he says, I want the older men to be sober. I want them to be serious. You give these traits. You know what the traits mean? Basically what it means is God wants his men to be serious about life. He wants them to be sound thinkers with their feet on the ground who've got gravitas in their life because they think clearly about life. And they don't flit over here or run after this trend or do this or go after some young chick. They're dependable. They're there. They're faithful. They show up even when they're bored. They keep showing up and honoring Christ. And you take men out of the home that are like that, family's in trouble. You take men out of a nation, families in, uh, the nation's in trouble. Right? This isn't a reality show, this is life. The reality is, life is hard, and we get weary. 
We're, are, are we going to suffer? Yeah. Turn with me real quick to uh, Psalm uh, 61. See, when you're in battle, it gets hot, and it gets furious sometimes. Psalm 61, verse 2. Uh, uh, actually, verse 1. He says, hear my cry, O Lord. David says, hear my cry. Uh, he's crying out to God here. He's crying out to God because he's desperate. Hear my cry, O Lord, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Three times a year the men of Israel were to go up to Jerusalem. There are times uh, in David's life he couldn't go up to Jerusalem because he was on the run. So he says, from the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is, is faint. The idea there is, is when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There are times, guys, we get overwhelmed by the battle. And when we get overwhelmed, we start despairing, we lose our hope, and we lose our confidence that we're going to make it and that God's going to provide and that God's going to make a way for us. So I'm reading this old guy, P.B. Power, in his book, The Seven I Wills of the Psalm. And if you'll note there... Um, in the King James, he says, I will cry unto thee. And then he talks about the different kinds of adversity we face as we go through life. And there are four levels that he recalls. And two of them, he goes from the lesser to the greater. The first two were, you know, the first one he calls like pebbles in the shoe, just the difficulties of everyday life. Okay. But then the last three and four are significant. Let me read this to you. He said, some of God's people are afflicted with perplexing and distracting troubles. Now listen carefully here. Such troubles do not gnaw the heart. They are too intrusive and pressing for that. But get this. They put a person to his wit's end. You ever been at your wit's end? Sure you have. These troubles confuse and harass him and almost wear him out by the, by the anxiety to which they expose him. Such are very often the troubles of business, of mothers with large families, of persons placed in difficult circumstances in life, cancer, etc., etc. Many a time they are half driven out of their senses by the dilemmas in which they are placed. Some of you guys are there right now. You're at your wit's end. But then there are also what he calls overwhelming troubles. Troubles which sweep over a man just as the mighty billows of the ocean sweep over and submerge the sands. These are the troubles which struggle with us, as it were, for life and death. Troubles which would leave us helpless wrecks. Troubles which enter into conflict with us in our prime, which grapple with us in our health and strength, and threaten to conquer us by sheer force, no matter how bravely we may contend. Everything I read about good health talks about the place of stress in a man's life. Um, and when I read things, well, I read things like this. Try to eliminate stress in your life. You ever heard that? Has anybody ever told you that? Well, I got news for you. If you're a Christian, you're going to have stress. Uh, sometimes you're going to have stress that's going to put you to your wit's end. Why? Because you were called to stress. You were called to tribulation. You were called to trouble. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake, and that is stressful. And when you get stressed, and when you're at your wit's end, and you begin to lose hope, and, you get, and, and what this does is it wears on you physically and emotionally and mentally, and you start running on fumes, and you start running out of gas, and when you get weak physically, it affects you emotionally and spiritually. You're not thinking clearly, and you're vulnerable, right? Yeah. 
So how do you fight off fear and anxiety? You got to put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. All right, now practically, how do you do that? I didn't bring the article because I left it on my desk by Ed Welch. But uh, let me see if I can show you this. Turn over to 1 Peter. Man, I hope I can find this because I'm doing this by memory. And I'm going to look like a fool if I can't. But I've looked like a fool oftentimes in public. This would not be my first. Uh, humble yourselves. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm warm. I'm getting close. All right, here it is. Look at verse 19, chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Then go down to 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, causing, uh, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Ed Welch is a, is a very strong Christian counselor in the Word of God. And not every Christian counselor is strong in the Bible, but he is. And he was talking about the fact, he's been a counselor for 20-some years, and he recently had a wave of anxiety hit him. And he, and he said, when, when a wave of anxiety hits you, what you have to do is go for the heavy artillery. And the heavy artillery is, see, we often go to 1 Peter 5, verse 7, we go to casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. And that's true. But he says the real key to fighting fear is in the previous verse. What do you do when you're fearful and you're anxious and you're worried and you got all this stuff coming at you and you're fatigued? What do you do? Verse 6, here's, here's, here is the command. Therefore, watch this, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. So you, you, you're in despair, you're wondering how you're going to make it, you're wondering how you're going to survive. You're gonna, what do you do? And, and you're perplexed, you're overwhelmed, you're not even sure. What do you do? You humble yourself. You know what that means? You get low. And when you pray, you don't tell God how to fix it. You get under it and you say, God, be merciful to me. You have loved me. You have been merciful to me. You have given me life. You have saved me. I trust you to continue to save me. through I humble my, what is your will? I don't prescribe to you, I trust you. I trust you. Because you love me. Because you love me, I have hope because you've saved me. Isn't that interesting? You humble yourself under God. That's our part. You humble that what that means is, what that means is, is that you prefer his will over yours. No matter how this turns, Lord, I trust you with my life. Why can you trust him? Because he has saved you and he will continue to save. I talked with a guy a few weeks ago and he was telling me his testimony. And one of the things he said to me, he said, you know, Steve, when God delivered me out of that particular situation, it was one of those moments he'll remember for the rest of his life critical issue. He said, when God delivered, he said, you know what I learned from that? If I had a million years to think about how God would have delivered me out of that situation, I never would have come up with it. Is that not true? God is infinite in his wisdom. And he will accomplish that which concerns me. Therefore, I can have hope because I've been saved. I'll continue to be saved all the way to heaven. Man, that's the greatest news in the world. Oh, what's the gospel called? Good news. Let's pray. So, Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for the continuing results. We have been saved, and we will be saved wherever we are today. We may be absolutely mystified. 
We, we, there, there may be a guy s sitting here tonight who is absolutely at his wit's end. You know it. You know all about it. You know, in fact, you know stuff about his situation he doesn't even know. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. On those who hope, on those who wait for his loving kindness. So, Lord, we submit to you. Instead of saying to you, Lord, here's, Lord, would you do this? Would you fix it? This? We don't know. How would we know? We don't know. So we submit our wills. We bow. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand. And at the right time and in the right way, you will exalt us. So we cast every care on you because you care for us. If you gave your son for us, why would you not give us all things? You will. In your way, in your time, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.